And we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy, in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this introduction to the uh, book of Romans, or to the letter of Romans, that Paul sends to the church which is in Rome, the Apostle Paul lays out the purpose of not only his ministry, but also the ministry of the apostles in general. He says in verse 1 that he has been separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The scriptures that he is referring to here is the Old Testament. That's all there was. The New Testament was being written, and the Old Testament was completed. So the point that he's making here is that the gospel and what he preaches and what he teaches is not a new religion, but is the fulfillment of an old promise that was rooted in the Old Testament. This is an ongoing faith which has been leading to Jesus Christ. This is not a new revelation in the sense that what he is addressing or what he's going to be talking about is not something that he came up with or that the apostles came up with, but it's something that God was promising in the Old Testament. In verse 3, speaking of Jesus, he says that Jesus is born of the seed of David according to the flesh. This is based on a promise. You find that in several places in the Old Testament. But in 1 Chronicles 17, this is the shortest that I found. God speaks to David and says this, And it shall be, when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you, that will be Saul, the king, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is an expansion of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Remember that? We've been talking about this over and over again. How his descendants were going to be a great nation, 
and kings will come from you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God here solidifies that promise and covenant by promising David that one of his descendants will sit in his throne and establish a kingdom that will be forever. And he will be my son and I will be his father. This seed will establish a kingdom that will last forever. That seed, Paul says, is Jesus. Jesus is God, takes on human flesh. But according to the promise, he had to be a descendant of Abraham through David, who was a descendant of Abraham, all the way down to Jesus. This is why when in the book of Matthew you have a genealogy of Jesus. Tracing back Mary all the way down through David, back to Abraham, and from Abraham back to Adam. In other words, he's as human as we all are. Yet, in verse 4, declare to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. This man, who is after the seed of David, who is the Son of God, is God. I'm not going to get into the details because if you've been here for a while, you know the doctrine of the Incarnation and the doctrine of the hypostatic union, fancy word, number one. In Christ, you have a union of human nature and divine nature, distinguished yet united. One person. So he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. When he was a man, he was the Son of God, limited, mortal, weak, vulnerable, with no power, like we are. You punch him, he would bleed. He didn't eat, he would hunger. He would get tired. He dies. And then the, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, raises him up from the dead. He is now declared what he always was, the Son of God with power. All the glory, all the power that he had before he became a man, now he has as a man and God when he ascends to the throne. That's what he means. Also, when a king dies and his son ascends the throne, there's a declaration. This is your new king. He was declared, the seed of David was declared the son of God with power. When he walked out of the grave and he ascended to the father and he took up the throne, he was declared that king with power. That's Jesus. This is his introduction to the letter of Romans. 
there is about six sermons there that I'm not going to preach today. I barely preach one. Paul is writing this letter to the church who is, that is in Rome. That is the heart, the capital of the Roman Empire. So he's writing a letter to them. Actually, the, the letter of Romans is a fundraising letter. He's trying to get funds so he can go to Spain and do some missionary work in Spain. And so he writes them a letter letting them know this is who I am and this is what I believe. And he ends the letter by saying, and he, if you read in the introduction to chapter 1, he tells them right off the back, I'm trying to get to Spain to do ministry. We do not know if Paul ever made it to Spain. Likely he didn't. Well, that was his intention. But the, the church that he's writing to in this greatest, of, this is the greatest, I've already explained all the books of the Bible are the greatest book of the Bible, but the, the book of Romans is the greatest book of the Bible, along with the other greatest books of the Bible. Because this is the only letter where we have a systematic explanation of the gospel and the Christian faith. As close as you can get to like a systematic theology is the book of Romans. So he writes this letter to the church which is in Rome. Prior to the Apostle Paul writing this letter and being born... There was a series of events that happened in history that led to that point. At the time, the Roman Empire was the powerful nation in the world. About 500 and so years before Paul, the prophet Daniel was in Babylon. And God gave Daniel a series of visions. And in these visions, there was going to be the next 500 years of human history were going to be predicted, all leading up to Paul. Paul is writing from Rome. Daniel was writing from Babylon. There's 500 years between them, roughly, 500 and something, between them. Yet they are connected by the same series of events that began back then. If I had a clicker, this is where I would just boom, and it, this would show up here, and it would be really awesome, but I don't have a clicker, so I have to walk over here. I have to do this, and I have to pray that that works, that works. Okay. So, okay, you guys can see this, I'm in the way, I'm in the way, okay. So, there's 500 years in between Paul and Daniel. Daniel sees a vision where he sees four beasts that are coming out of the water. Those four beasts represent four kingdoms that were going to happen in the future from Daniel's point of view. They're in the past from our point of view. Names are not given with the exception of the first beast, 
But we look back at history and we can see how these vision lines up with world events. So, I love that, great. Four bees coming out of the water. Let me give you some um, explanation of how the metaphors in the Bible work. Water, sea, ocean in the Bible signify chaos. In the book of Job, there is a great beast, the Leviathan, who rules over the waters. That's the devil. The waters is chaos, trouble, sin. In heaven, in the book of Revelation, we're told that the sea shall be no more. Meaning chaos, pain, hurt, suffering. Ancient peoples didn't like the sea. People drowned in the sea. Storms came from the sea. People didn't go to the beach and hang out like we do. They just didn't like that, okay? Jesus walking on water was an actual event that had a symbolical meaning. I walk on the water. I rule over the oceans. I rule over the sea. I say to it, stop, and it stops. Who is this man that tells the sea, stop, and it stops? That's God. That's Jesus. That actually happened, but it had a symbolical meaning. He controls the chaos. Nothing ever gets out of control that he cannot walk over and say, stop, and it's done. See what I mean? So these beasts come out of the sea. The first beast that he sees is a lion. That didn't work. Boom. There you go. That's the best I could find. All right. There's a lion with wings. I'm going to go through this very quickly. There's a lot there. I'm not going to get into all of the details of this. Okay. I'm, I'm proving a point. This lion is Babylon. That's where he's at. The kingdom of Babylon. That's where Daniel is at. The scripture says it. This is Babylon. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, Babylon represents the kingdom that Daniel is in. Daniel was captured out of Jerusalem. The Babylonians took over Jerusalem because God judged the Jewish people for being rebellious. So he sent the Babylonians, they invaded, and they took him out of the southern kingdom back to Babylon. Okay, that's them. That represents, you see that Babylon right there? This is the Babylonian kingdom, that green area. I want you to, I want you to use this as reference. Black Sea, Mediterranean, and this here, which I believe is pronounced Thrace, I don't know. This area here, okay, this is your reference, all right? That's the Babylonian kingdom, Median kingdom, and the kingdom of Lydia. Then he sees another beast that comes out of the water. Sees a bear. The bear has three ribs in his mouth, representing the three kingdoms that it devoured. The bear conquered the other kingdoms and established a larger kingdom. We're told in the Bible that the Persians invaded Babylon and took over Babylon 
along with the Median kingdom and the kingdom of Lydia and establish what is known as the Persian Empire. This is the Black Sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Thrace. Look at the expansion. See how big that is? The Persians came and took over this whole area. They conquer Lydia, Median, and Babylon, three kingdoms. This happened in history. The Persians tried to conquer Greece. But young Leonidas and his 300 gave up their lives. That's part of the story. Okay? There's a fourth, I mean, there's a third beast, which is a leopard with wings, a leopard, Leopardo, with wings and foreheads. It has wings because it was going to be fast. It was going to conquer quickly. It was going to devour very quickly. And it had four heads. At the age of 20, Alexander the Great inherited the throne from his father. Then he left Macedonia and Greece, and he conquered all of the Persian Empire, adding down to Egypt and Cyrene. He completed this at the age of 30. He left at the age of 20 and conquered one of the largest empires in ancient time in 10 years. And he died at the age of 32. This is history. Because he died so young, he didn't have a child to inherit his throne. So when he died, his kingdom was divided to four generals who took over the kingdom. Because there was a leopard with four heads and wings. This happened 250 years roughly after Daniel died and had already recorded his vision. This is important for two reasons. The Greeks, every empire believes themselves to be the greatest thing, superior, better. So they began to push their culture and language through this entire region. Greek culture and language, Greek philosophy, became sort of the normal culture of all this region. It was the language that most people spoke as a second language or a first language. And Greek uh, religion, pagan religion, along with Greek ideas and philosophy, became the dominant of this area, including Jerusalem. This is important because the Bible... The New Testament 
is going to be inspired in the Greek and is going to propagate through all this area. And Greek ideas and concepts were going to be used later to explain the doctrines of the Bible. This is not an accident. That was God's doing. Because the Greek language is very technical and is very detailed, it's very easy to translate into other languages, which facilitated the translation of the Word of God very early on into the languages of the day, Syriac, Latin, and other languages. God is moving world events. He's moving them forward to bring humanity to a point. There is a fourth beast that Daniel saw. He does not describe what it is. We don't know what animal it was. What we know is it was terrifying. It was bigger than all the other beasts. He was very afraid. It devoured everything. It crushed everything. All we know about this beast is that it had ten horns, and he had a, the teeth were of iron, and it ate and devoured everything. It was a terrifying beast. Now, because we don't have a description of what it is, artists have taken liberty to come up with different designs. This is one of them. I've seen it as a goat. I've seen it as a boar. I've seen it as a snake, a dragon. But that's all we know about this beast. It was more ferocious. It was bigger. It was larger than all the others. And it devoured everything in its path. And nothing could stand to it. Here is Rome. Black Sea, Thrace, and Mediterranean Sea. Greek Empire was this area. Persian was this area. And Babylon was just this area. That's Rome. At its best, Rome controlled two million square miles of territory. It was unbelievable. Especially in a time when there was no cars, planes, automobiles. They consumed the entire Mediterranean Sea up to Britain, Spain, France, Italy, Egypt, North Africa, all the way pushing into Albania in the Caspian Sea. There never was anything like Rome in ancient times and probably since. Rome was a machine. It was a military machine. Nobody could stand to it. Some of their regiments and trainings are still used today in modern militaries. And they were and when it came to engineering and technology, 
They were unsurpassed. They built a road system that connected the entire empire back to Rome. You ever heard that expression? All roads lead to Rome. That's because all roads led to Rome at one time. Navigational routes, road systems, including bridges, which are still there today. That is the Alcantara Bridge in Spain. It was built in 106 AD. It has been repaired seven times since, all of which were due to damage caused by war. So that's pretty good for 2,000 years. I mean, there's bridges in the I-4 that's been rebuilt probably more times <laughs> than this guy. You can drive a car on it still, they use it, and it's still standing there since 106 AD. That's Roman engineering. See, when the Romans conquered an area, they would let the people do what they were doing. You guys govern yourselves however you want. <laughs> But we're going to be around, we're going to set up camp, we're going to build a military base here, we may use your young men as soldiers if it's needed, we're going to charge you a tax, but we'll build bridges, we'll build roads. Here's the Roman road network in Britain today. The green ones are the ones that are still used today, 2,000 years later, they were built by the Romans 2,000 years ago. You ever seen this meme on the internet? 2,000-year-old Roman road, two-year-old road in Alabama. <laughs> they built aqueducts that bring water to towns. This is in Spain, this is in France. They would take waters from rivers and they would transfer water all the way to places in the cities which were distributed through pumps and other plumbing and to different areas for people to get water. Our modern day water systems are still based on technologies and ideas that they invented, obviously modernized. 2,000 years ago, the world had never seen anything like this as the Romans were. They were a machine of violence, engineering, and technology. And that was the world that Jesus was born into. Because Jesus died a Roman death. Crucifixion was a Roman death. They perfected that. I have an article in my house. I forgot the name of it. it was, it's, on the, it's on the death of Jesus from a medical point of view. This was published 1986, I believe it was, by a, a doctor and a couple other doctors, which they examined if it was possible for Jesus to have survived the crucifixion. And it goes into detail as to how the torture that he received and his crucifixion and the, how it damaged the anatomy to the point that no one could really survive a crucifixion. Romans perfected this. 
to make sure that you would die very, very painfully. So they were a military machine. They saw themselves as the greatest thing in the world, which they were in many ways. Military bases all over the known world. You couldn't escape Rome. You had to leave out into savage land to escape Rome. Remember that movie Gladiator? At the beginning, there's a very, very nice, probably the best scene in the movie. Aside for the lions and all that stuff. Well, he talks to the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, which is real emperor. I mean, the, the movie is fictional and Maximus was fictional, but Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor at the beginning of the movie, is a real historical character. Aurelius tells him in, in the battle, because they're in a battle in the beginning of the movie, why are we here, Maximus? You know, he's asking him, provided that that worship did not come against the emperor who was I don't, basically worshipped. He was, the, he was the, the assigned leader by the gods to rule Rome. So you can worship whoever you want. As long as you understand the emperor is the god of the empire, and our gods are respected, and you don't threaten the whole system and that whole way of life. So when the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, the Jews tell Pilate, this man calls himself the king of the Jews. Okay? Pilate then is put in a position where he has to inquire, if this is true, are you planning a revolt? Because then that's my problem. You guys can do whatever, just judge him by your laws, he tells them. So they say, no, he's declaring. See, you see how, how evil they were. We can't judge him by our laws. Because he would be innocent. Because he didn't do anything wrong. But he calls himself king of the Jews. And he might incite a rebellion. So you judge him. Because we know that you got to deal with this. That's why they say to him, Caesar is our Lord. And then they tell him, are you against Caesar? So they put Pilate against the wall. So when Pilate brings Jesus to interview him, why does he ask him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, we would already be fighting my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is coming down to here. But it's, it's not from here. Because Daniel saw four kingdoms. 
and another last kingdom. All the kingdoms of man that Daniel saw were all animals. He saw a lion. He saw a leopard. He saw a bear. He saw apparently a dinosaur. I don't know what the fourth, but it was an animal of some sort. <laughs> but the last kingdom that he sees, he sees one like the Son of Man. He sees a human being. And the human being is walking to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And then he is given dominion and power and a kingdom that shall never die and that will last forever and ever. The kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Christ, will overtake all of the other beasts, which are the kingdoms of men, and is going to supplant them, is going to be established, and it will reign forever. That's all in the introduction that Paul gave in those seven verses. When the church was born in Rome, it was born into a cruel, wicked, violent world. When the apostles died, the leaders that were left behind, their role was to take this and keep it going. No missionary boards like we have today. No internet. No Christian conscience. See, we live in a country and in a civilization after Christianity, influenced by Christian principles, influenced by Christian ideas. They were born into a world that didn't even know who Yahweh was. It was pagan. It was, the, it was paganism at its height. Militarily, politically, economically, powerfully, in a way the world had never been seen before. It controlled the entire known world at the time. And then into that world, by themselves, these men and women, putting their faith in Christ, went out and died and began conquering the same empire, which no longer exists. Rome was so influential that we're, in many ways, we are Romans still. A lot of our culture is still, their influence carried out to this day. If you're a lawyer and you do free work, what do you call that? Pro bono. It's a Latin term. It means for the good. If you're a congressman and you take some money from a corporation in exchange of certain favors, there's a legal term for that. It's quid pro quo. It means something for something. 
If you go to university, they give you a curriculum, which means courses in Latin, our legal system, our alphabet, whether it be in English or in Spanish or in French or in German even, is the Latin alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's the Latin alphabet. Their influence endures to this day. But it was conquered by the church. So the first sermons on church history for a long time, it's all going to be in Rome. And it's going to be about Rome. Because God had prepared the world and all these kingdoms so His church could arrive at the proper time and be able to grow in its proper place. Roman soil became the place where the seed of the faith grew into what it is today. And so when we talk about church history, we have to get into politics, governments, economics, and all of that. Because we grew the church in that context. We didn't come out of the sky and drop down. We, it came from that place. So if you were a Roman Christian, you came from a pagan family. And that was very difficult because you were threatening not only the religion, you were threatening the actual empire because they didn't separate the two. It was one thing. The gods, the empire, and the emperor was all one system. And so when you broke away from that system, you were threatening that system and you became an enemy of Rome. And Rome knew what to do with its enemies. So it was a battle that had to be fought. And so a lot of what we're going to cover is going to be hard for us to relate because we can separate whatever we believe from being good American citizens. You, do, you couldn't do that in Rome. You couldn't be a good citizen apart from the entire belief system that they have because it was all one unit. And to break away from that, you were breaking away from Rome. That's why it's very important to understand why the church was persecuted. It was political persecution. Yes, it was spiritual. Yes, it was because of Jesus. But it was political persecution. And they suffered political consequences and legal consequences that cost them their lives, their property, their families, and everything that they had. You don't do that for a myth or a fake religion. People who's willing to suffer, suffer for what is real, what they believe is true. It makes no sense when people say, that this is something that the apostles made up. 
Know. Know when you're going up against Rome. Know when you're going up against the Roman Empire. You're believing what you're saying. And you're suffering for what you're saying. And you're being tortured by what you're saying. And eventually die for what you're saying and what you believe. Because Peter was crucified. Like Jesus. Upside down. But he was crucified. Nails through his hands. Same as Jesus. Probably through his feet. Same as Jesus. Paul was beheaded. They were beaten. Tortured. Killed. They did that for something that was true. And real. So as we progress through this series. You're going to see how little by little. The Christian faith begins to change the world and the societies that it's in. And as big as Rome was, it's not as big as our kingdom. Because our kingdoms broke out of Rome into Europe, Asia, North America, all the way down to South America. Our kingdom has no borders. But it took a long time and a lot of sacrifice, and a lot of blood from the soldiers who fought the war. With no weapons, no guns, but with the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God. God kept His promise. He kept His promise to Abraham, to David, and He will keep His promises to you because He doesn't lie. He will establish a kingdom here. Fully one day. Visibly one day. And He will rule the earth. Along with the rest of this galaxy. Whatever it may be. Or how big it is. God will rule it all. Because He has dominion and power. And the last enemy to be defeated. Is death. Death will be defeated. One day you will not die. One day you live in your resurrected body. You will not get sick. You will not suffer. You will not die. There will be no violence. Anything that is wrong with the world will not exist. And everything that is good with the world will be multiplied many, many, many hundreds and millions of times. That's how good it's going to be at the other end. That's how good it is at the other side. That's why nobody comes back. Because even if they could, they're not coming back. They don't want to. So this is our first introduction of the introduction of several other introductions <laughs> before we actually get to the history of the church. There's going to be a lot of martyrdom. There's going to be a lot of martyrs and people who die for the faith at the beginning. So there's going to be a lot of suffering, a lot of horrible things that the Romans did. We'll get into the details of all the good things and the bad things, along with the horrible things that the emperors did. Some of the mistakes that the Christians did. 
because we've made bad choices throughout Christian history. The church has done bad things. We'll cover them all because we're here to learn from it. So the Apostle Paul wrote his introductions to the church, which is in Rome, the place where he eventually went to, and the place where he was beheaded. It was a long way from his home, where he was from. But it was there that the church grew, expanded, and laid the foundation that we build upon today. So it's going to be a long series. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, this, uh, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're mighty and powerful, that even the nations of this planet, even the powerful nations, Lord, bow to your will and to your purpose and to your glory. We thank you that there is no king or president or prime minister or ruler that is above you, and that they all will bow down to you one day, Lord. We thank you that you're good. We thank you that you love your people, Lord, that you came to rescue us from our sins and from the kingdom of darkness, and you transferred us to the kingdom of your Son. We thank you, Lord, because we know that your promises are always yea and amen, and that you never lie, and that you, there is not a promise that, you, that will be unkept by you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, that came and died for us. And in His name we pray. Amen.